Welcome to the Radio Bible Course and our continuing study of Hebrews chapter 8. Today we begin with verse 8. For he finds fault with them, he writes, when he says, The days will come, says the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I paid no heed to them, says the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow or everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he treats the first as obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Verse 8 tells us that he finds fault with them. With whom? The Jews, the people of Israel. Their inability to keep the law was the problem, although the law was righteous and good and holy. Now the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31 told of a future day when a new covenant would be established with Israel and Judah. These were the two parts of a divided nation since the death of Solomon. The words imply a united nation again. There is no mention here of Gentiles. God's covenants are always with his covenant people, Israel. The Bible doesn't say anything about a covenant with the church. In that respect, it's probably misleading to refer to a church or to name a church the church of the new covenant. Now, although established by Christ's death, the new covenant lacks fulfillment. But the day will come when Israel will be as described here in chapter 8 and as prophesied by Jeremiah. God said, I will, and those words are significant. And those words are not conditional. Men don't accomplish what is here written concerning the new covenant. Its fulfillment depends only on God. There is a coming day, the prophet has said, when Jews will welcome his word. Their hearts will overflow with it. Their stony hearts will be changed to hearts of flesh, meaning they'll be receptive and responsive to what God says and they will all know the Lord, and there won't be any need for teaching one another. Now, what does the word covenant mean? Its first use in this epistle to the Hebrews was in chapter 7:22, where Jesus is said to be a guarantee of a better covenant. It's found more than 200 times in the Old Testament and 17 times in the New. And the Greek word is diatheke, and was used commonly in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint. 
The normal use of the word covenant meant an agreement or a contract between two parties, such as a covenant between Jonathan and David in 1 Samuel chapter 23. It is also commonly used of God's agreement with his people, Israel. It describes the relationship between God and his people in regard to the giving of the law. And it's written there, And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. There is a language problem, however. The normal Greek word for an agreement between two persons is not diatheke, but theke. This is the word used in the marriage contract and other joint agreements. The Greek word diatheke always meant a will, not a covenant. The New Testament always uses this word diatheke, never theke. And why not? Because theke always describes an agreement which two parties must participate in fully and which one party can change. It would not be appropriate to have theke as the word for covenant in the Bible because God and man are not equal partners. Man can refuse a covenant made by God, but he can't change it. And God's grace cannot be limited by man. The new covenant here in Hebrews 8 is something that God determined and promised to do. It is unconditional. He doesn't set any stipulations for man to fulfill like the covenant with Abraham. The best illustration is a will. It is made by one person and it benefits another who accepts it. You don't change a man's will. Now, a clever lawyer might try to do that, but that would be dishonest. Nor can you change God's covenant. It is made by him alone for our benefit. We are not equal partners, that is, you and God. Under grace, there is no performance. The Jews knew nothing about wills until they learned it from the Romans. And there is no Hebrew word for will. But the word for covenant they did know. God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15:18. He promised him and his descendants all the land called Palestine, which lay between the river Euphrates, far north of Damascus, to the river of Egypt. And he didn't ask Abraham to do anything in order for God to carry out that covenant. God simply promised that he would do that for Abraham. It was unconditional. Later he made a covenant with the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. Its blessings, however, were conditional. They were conditioned upon obedience. Now the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, referred to here in Hebrews chapter 8, is also unconditional. That's to be expected because our author writes in verse 9 the words, Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. And the covenant made with their fathers is a reference to the one made at Mount Sinai, which was conditional. 
This new covenant is not concerned with the obedience according to laws. There is an absence of ifs, such as if you do this or if you fail to do this. Instead, we find no less than six I wills regarding what God promises to perform without man's assistance. Many people like myself thought becoming a believer required performance. We thought we were under a conditional covenant, and I became very legalistic because of that. While I understood salvation by grace through faith, I thought that I had to keep performing in order for God to love me and to accept me. And so I did things in order to win God's approval, little knowing that I already had his approval because I had believed in his wonderful son and God has accepted me on that basis. But I didn't have Bible teaching that taught me that. And that has happened to so many people who are very sincere. And so they are on a treadmill of obedience. They are doing things to try to win God's favor. Now that's not living by grace. That's trying to earn merit. Grace means the unmerited favor of God. Now, if you have your Bibles open in chapter 8 of the book of Hebrews and verse 8, it says the days will come, says the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with whom? With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, what does God promise to do? under this covenant, and to do all by himself. Well, that's in verse 10. He writes, I will put my laws into their mind and write them on their hearts, not on the doorposts, not on their garments, as was the custom of the Jews in the Old Testament. And in verse 12, he continues, I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Notice the I wills. Only God can say that and carry it out. Now, obviously, the new covenant is one of grace, with its fulfillment depending upon God, not man's merit. Instead of laws on stone, he writes into their minds. Instead of requiring memorization and the writing of laws on the doorposts and the gates, and on one's fingers and forehead, as the Jews did, God foretells the day of receptive hearts on which he will write his directions and guidance. All that the Jew did regarding the law was with a stony heart, but Ezekiel prophesied how God, quote, will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land, a new heart, I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to observe my ordinances. That comes from Ezekiel chapter 36. Now in verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 8, it tells us that God will be merciful, propitious, that means, toward their iniquities. 
Now, how can a just God do that? Iniquities is the word unrighteousness in Greek. Now, what permits a righteous creator to be merciful instead of demanding justice? After all, God has the law. The soul that sins must die. Is he backing away from that law? No, he isn't. There's a reason why God permits mercy instead of justice. Only the death of Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiation for our sins and the sins of the whole world, permits God to act this way toward us. Christ satisfied God's justice, and nothing else is needed. The gospel asks not that we do something, but it tells us what he did. The Bible, of course, tells us that salvation is the gift of God, that it's by grace through faith. You can learn more about grace by writing for one of our free booklets entitled Grace. This 30-page booklet will help you to understand the significance of the word grace. Grace in the New Testament never means God's help after we have done our best, nor is grace a reward. Grace instead is God's unearned favor. It requires no merit. And that's why the gospel is good news, because it tells us about God's grace. We believe your understanding of grace will be expanded greatly by our free booklet on grace. Write for your copy today. Don't send money. It's free. Until tomorrow, this is Nick Calavota reminding you that the word gospel means good news. Our address is Radio Bible Courses, Post Office Box 14916, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, 70898. The website is rbcword.com.